You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church from the series, The King and the Kings, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Well, today we're in First Samuel chapters 18, 19, and 20. I, I'm not sure we've ever preached from three whole chapters, maybe a few times, but this is a long portion of text. And did you all get your email this week to read this in advance? You got that, I hope, right? So we're going to really trust that you did because we're going to be talking about a number of things. But I think um, the chapters, these chapters are best highlighted by looking at a single verse written by Solomon. So we have a large section, three chapters, but we also have a singular verse that describes them. Here's the verse, Proverbs eighteen twenty four. In fact, will you read this with me? Let's read it together. A man of many companions may come to ruin... But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I think Solomon was thinking of David and Jonathan when he wrote this verse. Do you know that? Now, we have nowhere in the text that proves that. So it's your pastor's opinion. But I think it's interesting because you don't hear anything else of David's brothers after Goliath. Do you know that? But we hear a good bit about Jonathan. I think Solomon heard the stories and watched it and wondered, whatever happened to my dad's brothers? But I heard about Jonathan. I I saw that. I saw how he treated his family. And somewhere in that, the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon, I think, to pen these words in light of David and Jonathan's friendship. That there are friends who stick closer than family. Let's unpack some of that today, can we? In this message from the three chapters in 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. In fact, we're going to see this right here. That there are friends with which we have a mutual faith, and they're the ones who love us in both the victories and the valleys of life. They're the kind that stick closer than a brother. And often in those very friends, that's how God shows us His faithfulness his his faithfulness his character traits become very tangible like real and and hands-on ish we're going to see this take home truth played out today so first samuel 18 19 and 20 i'm going to read the two bookends you'll probably have some questions about things in between there Uh, So feel free to text them in on the number behind me i don't know that we'll get to the questions live we'll try uh, if not, we'll guarantee you some type of answer during the week, so feel free to text them in anyway. I mainly just want to kind of take the bookends of these chapters, because I think they give us some good insight into the main characters. They are David and Jonathan. So if you were to draw this in a chart form, if you were to look at it like, okay, how do these three chapters look? I'd encourage you to kind of draw it in this way. The bookends are chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Here's David and Jonathan saying hello to each other, so to speak. We see their friendship growing close, and and they're becoming very tight. In chapters 20, uh, verses 35 through about 42, we see David and Jonathan saying goodbye to each other. So I think these two passages bookend much of what happens in between it. So let's read the beginning portion where these two guys say hello to each other, so to speak. And let's read the final one where they say goodbye to each other. Can we do that? And then we'll talk about the middle portion. Here's chapter 18, 1 through 5. 
As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. So yes, this is not just the beginning of their friendship, but we're beginning to see how they got closer and, and tighter and deeper friends. So much so that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So on the heels of this great victory over Goliath, Jonathan, he sees God's anointing and confirmation. Saul recognizes David's success. So Saul brings David into his house. Jonathan and David become very good friends. And they make a covenant, verse 3 says, together. Because Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There's a deep kindred friendship here. So much so that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. That is the kingly robe. Jonathan didn't get naked. He didn't go down to bare flesh and bones. He simply stripped off the kingly robe that would signify he was the heir to the throne. Look what else he does. He gives it to David as well as his armor, his sword, and his bow, and his belt. All those things signified, I'm the commander-in-chief. I'm the one waiting to take the throne. And what does Jonathan do? After Goliath, remember, context matter. After seeing Samuel 16, David's anointed. Samuel 17, David's confirmed. Okay, so I'm not going to be the next king. And instead of fighting that, Jonathan humbly recognizes it and gives the, the kingly attire and the kingly weapons to the next future king. This is an actual, we could spend three or four weeks just on this. This is an incredible act of humility, isn't it? I mean, he's the next in line, but he recognizes God's choice is different. And so he willingly gives up, gives it to David. It says in verse 5 that David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. Here's David now living out visibly what's said about him. He was a man of valor. He was a warring king. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So the victory in 17 is just continuing. As you read continuing in 18, you find that the crowds were chanting, Saul, you've slain a thousand, but David, you've slain 10,000. So what you're finding is that David is in a great place of victory, isn't he? We call that a mountaintop sometimes. Man, things from Goliath forward, just so far, they're looking great. The guy who should be the heir is willingly giving up his right to the throne, recognizing God's work in David. He's successful in his battles. Saul's bringing him in to live with him. So far, it's looking pretty good. But the hello quickly turns to a goodbye. And the victory quickly turns to a valley. Look at the end of chapter 20, would you? Let's begin in verse 35. This is on the hills of... Saul's personal demons taking their toll on all of his relationships. Saul's insecurity and and unwillingness to to work with the Lord, so to speak. So much so that he tries to kill his own son. This was the evidence to Jonathan that his dad was going to take David out if he could. And so he makes an agreement with David that if I shoot an arrow and it goes beyond you... Don't come home. It's not good here. Here's how this ends. Verse 35 of chapter 20. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run, find the arrows that I shoot. 
As the boy ran, he shot an arrow behind, beyond him. When the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called for the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. In other words, get the arrows, get back here. David's, of course, watching this from behind a rock. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows, came to his master, and the boy knew nothing about David and Jonathan's arrangements, the point of verse 39. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And so Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy, and he said to him, Here, go and carry them to the city. So Jonathan now has created a, a situation where he can say goodbye to his friend. This is what he does. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from behind the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you. See, their friendship was built and founded on mutual faith. And between my offspring and your offspring forever. If you'll read the middle portion of these three chapters, you'll find that there was this covenant, this lasting promise. It's fulfilled in 2 Samuel 9 when Jonathan's son, who was lame in both feet, was about to be destitute. And David, by his own incredible graciousness, brought in Jonathan's son and gave him all of the land and entitlements that were actually his grandfather's Saul. His name was Mephibosheth. David kept his word to Jonathan, the grandson of his arch enemy. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He kept his covenant to his friend Jonathan. But in this chapter, they're making this covenant. They're committing to this uh, friendship between their offspring forever. And then it says, David rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city back to his family. But I want you to notice one of the words in verse 1 of chapter 21. Because here's really what's happening. It says that when David then came to Nob, uh, Ahimelech met him and asked him, Why are you, what's the next word? Alone. Do you see the trajectory of these three chapters? Here's chapter 18. In the king's uh, palace, with everyone chanting what a great warrior is, close to uh, Jonathan, I mean, things didn't look any better. Three chapters later, he is all alone. Now, he's actually not alone. Because who does he have as his friend? Jonathan. But he is physically alone in the sense that there's no one with him. But yet he's got this incredible friend who has promised him life-long friendship. What's going on between these two, cha- uh, these th- uh, these two bookends? What's happening here? What's going on between the hello and the goodbye? Let's talk about that for a few minutes, can we? I've kind of narrowed it down to three basic sections. We see Saul's personal jealousy, we see his private conspiracy, and then we see the public plot. This is how David goes from victory to valley. Saul is after David. He starts with a personal conspiracy, um, rooted in his personal jealousy. Let me give you a few verses here that I think will kind of walk us through these three sections. Look at chapter 18, verse 9. On the heels of David being celebrated, what does Saul begin to do? It says in verse 9 that he eyed David from that day on. In other words, he was a very jealous, insecure king. 
So here's his personal jealousy getting the best of him, so much so that he tries to kill David with a spear. Some may wonder about this idea of a harmful spirit from God in verse 10. Let me just address that. This would be God's removal of the kingly empowerment that he gave to Saul, and he's now giving it to David. If you want to use these two words, it's the investment of God's spirit upon David and the divestment of God's spirit from Saul. Now, is it a demonic spirit? Was it something where Saul had moments of insanity? Was it a physical condition? Was it a spiritual thing? Those are good questions. There's some difficulty in this. We don't have completely clear answers. But understand this. It was from God saying to Saul, you're not the choice of king any longer. Your demise is underway. And I've given my spirit now to another, to David. Does that make sense? So just kind of keep that in mind. This can be hard to figure out. It's not the easiest. But when the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, he did act in ways that were kind of crazy. The word used in verse 10 is raved. And it caused him to treat his trustworthy friends in terrible ways. All this is because Saul was very jealous and insecure. Verse 9, again, he eyes David. But this turns into a... Kind of a conspiracy in which Saul, this is, this is incredibly crazy, but Saul uses his own daughters to try to kill David. Now, how does he do that? He gives his daughters to David, the first one he offers, and then he must have forgotten that he offered her to David because he gives her to someone else. Then he gives Michael to David. But all of that was rooted in the fact that he wanted David to go to war for him. Marry into my family, become a warrior because I want the Philistines to kill you. So you'll notice in this next section, look at verse uh, 20. Let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. You see this in verse 17. You see it in verse 25. Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. I think verse 29 sums it up well. Saul was David's enemy continually. Do you see that? So it goes from a personal conspiracy, excuse me, it goes from a personal sense of jealousy to this idea of a private conspiracy, I'll use my, my closest relatives to try to take out David. It's hard to imagine the height of that insecurity. Could someone say, man, they're like, I don't get that personally. Use your own daughters to try to take out. Let you know the, the, the level of Saul's depravity. Well, it gets more striking. Beginning in chapter 19, he finally just voices what he's been feeling for a while. Look what he says in verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. (laughs) So no longer is he just eyeing him. No longer is he trying to work and maneuver the situation with his relatives to try to kill him via the enemy. He's now just voicing it. Hey, you know what? Let's take David out. And Saul's a sad case. I don't think Jonathan actually believed his father initially. Maybe that's because he felt his father had some mental issues now. Maybe there were times he saw his father uh, act in ways that were outrageous. That's just dad on a bad day. I don't know. But you find it in this next chapter to Jonathan kind of working with his dad to say, you can't kill him. Why do you want to kill him? He's done good for you. And and Saul even says in verse 6, I think, okay, I won't kill David. And Jonathan, for some reason, is the only one in this chapter who really believes that. Because later you'll find that he goes to David and he says, listen, you're fearing for nothing. My dad told me he wouldn't kill you. And David makes this beautiful poetic statement. 
It's in chapter 20, verse 3. Look with me there, would you? Here, David and Jonathan actually disagree. Jonathan's going to bat saying, no, my dad's not going to kill you, I promise. But David says, as truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. I mean, David knows he's on the way out. He's had a spear thrown at him. He's been sabotaged by uh, Saul's daughters. He's aware of the conspiracy and the jealousy. And so he tells Jonathan, you can think the best of your father. You can think that I'm able to come back to the palace, but I think I'm just one step from death. Guys, watch this. Church, listen to me. This is the same individual who stood in front of Goliath and said, you're going down today. Do you see from victory to valor? Do you see the incredible journey he's taken from being surrounded by fans to where the priest in chapter 20 says to him, Hey, why are you all alone? I think verse 31 of chapter 20 kind of sums up the public plot best. Here's Saul saying to Jonathan in anger, Send and bring David to me, for he shall surely die. So what's happening between these two bookends? And you can again, you can see in verse 33. Let me just look, have you look at that. Jonathan now finally knows that his father was determined to put David to death. Do you see that? So, so in these scenarios, his personal jealousy, his private conspiracy, his public plot, that's sobering, isn't it, church? We see that, like, wow, that's, that's an incredible decline from victory to valley. But watch this. In each of those scenarios, God provides for and protects his future king. How? through the various relationships in his life. You'll find that his wife helped him escape from his own home, Michael. You'll find that Samuel helped him when he was in uh, Ramah. But you primarily find Jonathan just really going to bat for David. You find, in fact, here's how we say it. You find God's faithfulness seen in the face of Jonathan. When David was going from victory to valley, when David was going, wow, I, there, there were thousands changing my name. Now I'm all alone. Is God with me? Is God for me? It was Jonathan. It was Jonathan's face that exhibited and displayed, God is with you. He gave him his kingly attire. He always went to bad for him verbally. He helped him emotionally. In fact, I would say that the scriptures in these two to three chapters... They show that Jonathan helped David in at least three ways. Emotionally, there was this covenant, I'm not going to bail on you, I'll be here through thick and thin. Their souls were knit together. So there was an emotional support that Jonathan provided for David that was very biblical and healthy. By the way, some take this to mean that there was an unhealthy aspect. They would even say it was a homosexual aspect to this. That's perversion of the text. This is nothing more than royal biblical love. It is not sexual love. And we've got some good resources for you on this. Uh, On our Facebook page, there's a wonderful message there that will kind of walk you through ways to 
to see this in its correct way and not let it be perverted to mean that these two guys were homosexual. On my own personal blog, uh, I have some articles there as well. And so I encourage you, if, you're, if you hear that, if you wonder if folks say that, well, they, the, Jonathan took his clothes off. And later we know that David even said about Jonathan that his love was better than all the love of the women. That must mean David and Jonathan were, were homosexual partners. It does not mean that. In fact, for David to say that I've loved Jonathan, it was better than all the love I've had to women, he's simply speaking there in, in this term. Watch this. It seems like every one of his wives had something uh, kind of uh, an angle they're working they're used by their dad. They're trying to, you know, it seems like there's a reason they're in the picture. But Jonathan had an unconditional covenant with David in spite of opposition. Does that make sense? That's all David's saying, that this is the only one who, it seems like, loved me without an angle. That's all he's saying. I would caution you to, to read up, study, listen, and learn so this isn't twisted to mean something it never means. All right? What happens sometimes is we see this, and then sometimes men get afraid to have honest, watch this, honest biblical friendships. But there's nothing wrong with honest biblical friend love between men who say, you can count on me through the valleys and the victories. Amen, church? A band of brothers type of thing. That's what's happening here. Nothing more and nothing less. So Jonathan was a, an emotional support, no doubt, an emotional um, friend. He's also a physical friend. He helped him in a number of ways. He accompanied him back to the palace that one time. He helped him you know, devise a method by which he could communicate about is it safe to come back or not. So he was physically there. And by the way, I think he was a verbal support. John, uh, David had no better friend than Jonathan when it comes to the king. Jonathan was consistently saying, Dad, what is up with you? This guy's winning your battles. He's got no, you've got no reason to take him out. Does that make sense? That's, what, that's what's going on here. So emotionally, physically, and verbally, David sees God's faithfulness in the face of Jonathan. His life, from a, from a physical standpoint, from a visible standpoint, is headed this direction. Like, man, it's not going good for David. But Jonathan knows there's a bigger picture in play. He gives him his kingly equipment. He supports him unconditionally. He goes to bat for his dad. There's few examples of deep friendship in the Bible as beautiful as Jonathan and David. And I've, I just believe in these three chapters, what we see is God protecting and providing David through the tangible, hands-on reality of a faithful friend. Someone, watch this church, someone who sticks closer than a brother. Does that make sense? Man, does this kind of take on some shoe leather now, just kind of plain and simple? And does this kind of make our take-home truth? Um, like, oh, I get this now. Here it is again. That God's faithfulness to us is often seen in the face of a friend with a mutual faith. That one who loves us in both the victories and the valleys and who sticks closer than a brother. In fact, could you read that with me? Let's read it together. God's faithfulness to us is often seen in the face of a friend with a mutual faith. That one who loves us in both the victories and the valleys of life and sticks closer than a brother. 
Now, everyone here would agree, we, we think that's true. Some of you are wondering, like, man, I wish I had that kind of friend. Some of you are thinking about someone who is that kind of friend. There's all kinds of reactions. But can I let you hear from someone who has experienced this at least recently? And they've experienced this in their small group. And by the way, they're somewhat new to their small group. I'm a huge fan of small groups. Um, I, I think... Uh, it's what makes church. In fact, apart from the preaching and the worship, like the gathering, I'm not saying that doesn't make church church, but when it comes to, to this kind of stuff, where do we see God's faithfulness really displayed often? It's in the face of other Christians, and I think that happens really well when the group is smaller. And you can look at my eyeball to eyeball on a weekly basis, and, and you can just be honest and share, and you're safe, you know? You're accountable, Yes. I want you to meet some folks who can testify to God's faithfulness as seen in the face of some of their friends. Barry and Elizabeth, will you join me, please, for a moment? They're going to join me on the platform. I want you just to hear their story for a moment. This won't take long. Um, I appreciate your courage to come up and share in front of these wonderful people. They're all staring at you, but they're nice, I promise. <laughs> I'm just asking this question. How have you guys seen God's faithfulness like in the face of your small group? Can you just kind of expand on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. We've seen God's faithfulness in a variety of ways. Uh, Galatians 2, or 6 2, talks about bearing each other's burdens. And we've just seen that in a, uh, through, as you were saying, through ups and downs in lives, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with each other, really uh, bearing life with one another, uh, getting in downs on our hands and knees, and just praying through situations for one another. Um, and really just locking arms with each other, pointing each other uh, to Jesus uh, by his grace. Um, but Proverbs 27, or 27, 17, uh, talks about iron sharpens iron, so I'm another man that sharpens another. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have seen iron actually being sharpened by iron, but it's a pretty intense process, very uh, dangerous sometimes with the sparks uh, coming and things of that nature. Um, and we've seen that you know, in our small group as well, where they're just pouring out each other's sin, the ugliness of our hearts, and really just bringing that to light. And again, just pointing each other towards Jesus for the sake of the gospel, and really just taking each other together as a family uh, through good times and through bad, uh, being, being there for one another. And she's got some more she wants to share as well. So, um, When I think of seeing God's face, through the faithfulness of, or seeing God's faithfulness in the face of others. Uh, the verse that comes to my mind is from 1 Thessalonians 2.8, and it says, it's where Paul is telling the Thessalonians that they loved them so much that they delighted to sit, share not only the gospel of God with them, but their lives as well. And I would say within the past few months of our lives, um, Barry's had some medical stuff going on, and we've been having a lot of doctor's appointments. He had surgery two weeks ago um, on the back of his head, and our small group has surrounded us and supported us like nothing we could have ever dreamed of. It's been above and beyond. And I've seen the Lord in that, whether it's the meal train they put together and then served us through or the constant texts that I receive from all of the ladies in the groups, morning, noon, night, throughout the day when I'm at work, just checking in, asking how I'm doing, asking how Barry's doing. Um, has really been a sign of the Lord's faithfulness to us in giving us those friendships that we so desire. Amen. Now, a lot of you weren't aware of that, but Barry, what's the name of this? I'm not sure if it's a, a disease or if it's a situation. I'm not sure. What's the name sure, of it? Sure, it's a disease called neurofibromatous. I can never pronounce it right. Um, it's type of one. 
And typically, I have neurofibromas going uh, right now in the back of my head. I've had nine surgeries uh, since 2011. Uh, I nearly went to see Jesus a few times. Um, if I continue to talk about them, and start crying. So, um, but yeah, it's a it's been an intense process. Usually on a scale of one to ten, and uh, right now I'm at, I would probably say I'm in an eight. Uh, in pain wise, in, in the hospital I was at like a twelve or fifteen. So, so it's a serious thing going on in his head. Just to it through, so you had surgery on the back. Yeah, and the surgery in the back of my head. Uh, it's another on, uh, one, of course. Yeah. What's that? Another surgery. Right? Yeah, yeah, another surgery. So, uh, typically they are not very fun. Uh, it puts my family and my wife through misery. Just sitting in there. Um, it's probably the hardest on family, and because um, I just sit there and have medicine and. Uh, kind of let the medicine sometimes take its course, but uh, it's definitely harder on her mm-hmm. without question. And she's been a tremendous trooper uh, throughout this all. So, uh, yeah, she's been a treasure. Amen. Um, it's interesting when, on top of this, you're newly married, right? How long have you been married? Uh, um, two years on May 9th. Okay, so that may seem like a long time to you, but they're newly married. <laughs> so, think about this, guys. Uh, newly married, a couple years. Severe medical issues, number of surgeries. They're going to Chicago, is that right, for the surgeries? Yeah. So work is difficult. Uh, it's hard to maintain regular employment. And then, of course, your job had to be away. And all of that just weighing on them. And, and when, when you found that small group, uh, I was talking to Elizabeth one day, and, and I said, how's that going? Is that working pretty good? She goes, oh, it's been, and what was the word you used to me? You want to just tell them that, how you express that? I just said it's been life-giving. It was exactly what I needed. Isn't that good to hear? Now, now watch this. And you'll find no bigger fan of theology than me. I'm a doctrine addict, okay? So don't hear this wrong. But how, how did God show up in their life when at times they felt alone? Like the, the bucket's too big to carry, the load's too heavy. Did God say, okay, here's a book on theology, did God say that? I'm not saying that doesn't matter. No, God showed them his faithfulness in the face of actual breathing people. Faces. Flesh you can, like you said, kneel down and pray with. Text from actual people who have names. Guys, are you, are you seeing this? This is just an example of people that are just like you who have seen God's faithfulness in the face of their friends. Hey, thank, yeah, go ahead, sure. Um, throughout that, too, it wasn't just like a text like once every week. Um, I mean, our, our, both of our phones are blowing up uh, like crazy. Um, probably the people that were texting me, I got a later action because I didn't realize if I had a text or not because I didn't remember it. So, um, But, yeah, it, just, it was overwhelming when I, in a good way, getting out of the hospital. I remember thinking that she was telling me all the people that, uh, have been texting her, especially from the small group, and some people here with, involved in church as, as well. And it was just uh, mind boggling and so encouraging, and just Amen. more just speechless, and uh, just knowing how many people were praying. Um, what I can't really think of too many words right now. Uh, more of uh, speechless, I guess. That's good. Even though I'm talking a lot. So, Will you pray for Barry and Elizabeth, and especially the medical situation? I'm not as familiar, right? But I know we've just been praying for you. And uh, thank you for having the courage to share with your larger church family just how God has proven faithful by using your small group and their faces. Can you thank these guys for me?
Amen. Thank you so much. Briefly, can I share with you some universal uh, face value observations that I think are true in Jonathan David as well as Barry and Elizabeth and their small group and would be true in your life? I'll just mention these briefly. Uh, I'll fly through them. They'll be on the screen. You might want to take a picture instead of writing them down. But I was just thinking through the text, things that would you know apply then as well as now. I kind of have a few observations. First of all, friendships are... Forged, not found. You know, Solomon said, a man that has friends must show himself friendly. And you don't stumble upon a friend, by the way. You typically uh, develop a friendship over time with someone in which you're willing to, to spend some time with in difficult situations. I just am confident as we read this, hear their story, and watch your life. Friendships are forged. If you're new here and you hear that story, like, well, I'm not in a small group yet. I haven't really found that kind of friend. Um, A man that has friends must show himself friendly. And so, you know, friends aren't given on a silver platter. They're often discovered and they're developed over very difficult situations. So I just would encourage you, keep this in mind. Friendships are forged. They're not found. They're not microwaved. Here's one of the best ways to forge a a friendship is to resist jealousy because jealousy is a relational and community killer. In fact, the two bookends show us that Jonathan resisted jealousy of David's rightful uh, choice as king, but Saul couldn't. He was adamant that Jonathan was going to get the throne and that jealousy destroyed every one of his relationships. So just keep in mind, As you are forging friendships, jealousy will kill it in a heartbeat. And jealousy kills it communally, individually. And so several times in the New Testament, Paul would warn that in early churches, think of others better than yourself. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What I found often is that When we hear good news from someone, we almost act like, well, it didn't happen to me, so I'm going to try to make your good news less good. And we say a sarcastic comment. We try to undermine it, or we make fun of it. Instead of just saying, you know what? I'm so glad for you. That's awesome. You know what that does? It just kind of signifies, I've got a hint of jealousy, and I don't like the fact that you're succeeding and I'm not, so I'm going to try to undermine yours. Sometimes when folks are hurting, we do the same thing in the opposite way. And instead of just entering into their pain and saying, you know, can I just cry with you for a bit? Can I just sit with you? We often want to try to fix it or, or remove it or act like it's not a big deal or tell our story quickly to make sure their story is not quite as bad. Can I just say to you as your pastor, here's a really good friendship tip. When the story's not about you, don't make it about you. If someone's celebrating, rejoice with them. And when, it's, when they're hurting, just weep with them. It's been helped our marriage a ton, Julie and I, and our friends, just to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It keeps jealousy at bay, helps breed authenticity. It also then does this. It enables selflessness to build that relationship because just as jealousy is a community and relational killer, selflessness is a relational and community builder. Nothing will improve your marriage, your parenting, your small group, your friend, like trying to outdo one another in serving. 
Do you know that? Romans 12. Paul actually exhorts us to, to try to outdo each other. He uses the word prefer. Prefer each other. Outdo each other in serving. Man, that's the way to build relationships and to forge a friendship. Know that as you do this, as you resist jealousy and insecurity, and as you pursue selflessness, you're pointing to something greater. And all true biblical friendships point to something greater than themselves. Case in point, what did Jonathan and David's friendship point to? It pointed to David's rightful place as God's choice. And for Jonathan to take off his kingly attire and say to David, Hey, you know what? Our covenant, our friendship's not about me. It's really not about you, David, in one sense. It's about what God is doing through us in displacing my dad and bringing you to the throne of man after his own heart. That's an incredible amount of humility and discipline. Wouldn't you agree? Their friendship pointed to something bigger and deeper. God's work in Israel. God's choice of a new king. And I, I tend to think the greatest and deepest friendships are, are, are about something bigger than themselves. This is why, church, listen very carefully to me here. I want every ear wide open. This is why you can be in a church with folks that you may not see eye to eye with. Because it's not about you and that person seeing eye to eye. It's about making disciples of all nations. I'm not talking about closed-fisted doctrine, all right? But on areas where you have some personal preferences that are different. That can exist in a body, and you can get along, and you can be unified. Why? Because the mission matters most. What mission? The mission of God's passion to bring before his throne someone from every single nation, language, tribe and tongue and don't mistake God's uh, uh, promise to be like let's hope it happens it will happen church and we get the joy of being part of that how sad would it be that we miss out on God's global work because we're so uh, petty and worried about individual things on our level when God's doing something so much grander and so much bigger amen so before you head out the door he goes, well, so-and-so said something to me. I don't like the way that exact thing happened. Man, can I just say, uh, toughen up a bit. Get a spine. And realize that there's something far greater happening. Learn to get along for the sake of the gospel. And where you're different, let's just admit it. Hey, we see some things differently. Don't divide the church over it. Don't detour the church over it. Do all you can to live at peace with people. But when you can't, solve every issue, then learn to disagree agreeably for the sake of the gospel. Here's something that I do personally when these kind of things come up. I think about people like Courtney Johnson. I think about the Hensels when they were in Jamaica. I think about the Nesbits. I think about Tamor, the cops. I think about the Clarksons the Landoms. These are a few of our partners, many of them in some very remote places, and I think, good night. For their sakes, I can get along with people. 
for their sakes, we can figure this American thing out, church. This is why many of you should go and visit our partners in some of these remote places. You'll come back and you won't complain near as much. Your gratitude will soar. So I hope I haven't been too transparent with you. I think selflessness builds relationships community. Jealousy tears it down. So let's selflessly serve for something greater than ourselves. Let's serve for God's passion. That is our mission. Lastly, I noticed this about friendships in general. That often they're forged. They, they, we see the face best when it's the darkest. In other words, we point to God's faithfulness when life is at its worst. Now, let's just kind of put the chips on the table here. There's been times that some of us haven't done that. Would you agree with that? I don't think anybody here bats a thousand, correct? But friendships are forged by forgiveness as well. So mutual faith and then a readiness to forgive forges friendships. So if you're here thinking, well, Todd, life was at its worst for me one time and -and so-and-so, they weren't there. Here's an idea. Forgive them. And when they say, I'm sorry, I didn't do that well. You're right. And they ask for forgiveness, forgive them. And and then thank God that the friendship can be renewed and restored and continue to try to forge it. Does that make sense? And don't repeat the matter. Solomon said, if you repeat a matter, you separate the very best of friends. I'm just trying to encourage you. When you see that, okay, we shine and we, we point to God's faithfulness when often life's at its worst, but that didn't happen every time. Yeah, we're, we're not home yet. We're not in heaven. It won't happen perfectly. It'll probably happen badly again at some point. I'm not excusing it. I'm just trying to prepare you for the reality of it. Forgiveness, faith, they provide the foundation for forging a friendship that goes the distance. The kind of friendship in which we see God's faithfulness. And together then, we work towards something bigger and outside of ourselves. The passion and mission of God. You say, Todd, how does that happen? That's, kind of the, that's the kind of friendship that, that, man, I long for. And that's theology and shoe leather that, that we all would love to experience. How does it happen? It happens as we behold the face of Christ. For watch this, church. Listen, if you missed everything I've said, don't miss this. His faithfulness fuels our friendships. The longer you stare at the glory of God in the face of Christ the better you'll be able to be the face of God's faithfulness. In fact, read this verse with me, would you? Lisette's going to join me on the platform. We're going to sing a couple songs as we leave today. But I want you to see this verse, because if you're wondering, how do we do that? How do we resist jealousy, pursue selflessness? How do we point to something bigger? How does, how does David and Jonathan really show up in our life? The key isn't to white-knuckle this and, and leave and think, okay, I'll be a Zig Ziglar kind of guy, you know, and I'm just going to be better the key is to stare at someone who's totally different than you. Yeah, David and Jonathan's a good picture, but they point to the deeper friendship, the better friendship, that of Christ on our behalf. Look at how Paul motivated the Corinthians to serve each other. He says, we don't proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And why can he proclaim that? And why can they live that? For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where in the, say it with me, 
face of a Jesus Christ, the longer you stare at the face of Jesus Christ and his incredible deep friendship to you, the better friend you will be. And your motivation for being a, a Jonathan or a David is not horizontal in nature. Your motivation is vertical at its core. Why can that small group be that way to Barry and Elizabeth? Because that small group's pointing towards God. What does God want our small group to do? Why can you and your sister, you and your brother, you and your friends, your kids, your spouse, why can you work through difficult times and honor each other and serve each other and resist jealousy? Because that's exactly how Jesus acted to you. He was a friend of sinners. And he knows what it's like to be alone, just like David. You know that, right? I mean, David's trajectory his downward spiral in relation to his friends is like Christ. Christ, on Palm Sunday, rode into cheers that he was what? The one who would save us now, Hosanna. And a week later, what are they saying? Crucify him. And even his 12 closest friends left him. And he was left to hang on a cross alone and naked. As his way of showing you, I will be your faithful friend. So if you want to be a faithful friend, if you want to have the face that shows God's faithfulness, the key is to stare in the face of Christ. So this morning, I want us to do that as we leave. I want us to root every bit of this practical exhortation in the theology of the gospel. That to be the friend we need to be, we should see the friend that Jesus is. Amen? We should find, uh, we should let his faithfulness fuel our friendship. So this morning we do something we did maybe a year or two ago. We, we, we talked about suffering. We stripped back all the music one week. And we kind of got back to that place where you could sense when there's nothing there. It's just you and, and your situation. You felt alone, bare. You were in the valley, you just came out of the victory. Like, what happened? In those moments, it's good to just kind of realize that, you know, though it feels that way on the outside, God is faithful to me. And he has proven his faithfulness in the face of Christ. This morning, I'll do the same thing. I want us to kind of picture, if we would, that road David traveled from victory to valley. Maybe you feel that way. Like, man, I'm in a valley. Where are my friends? Who's there? How can I see God's faithfulness? Let's start by seeing it in the one who has never let us down. Amen, church? And let's just kind of strip back now for a bit. Our worship team's not going to join me this morning. In fact, for the first time in maybe years, they're going to get to sing with you. <laughs> a blessing for them, I hope. I'm not the best singer, but I want to lead you through some songs that talk about the friendship of God to us. Okay? Let's begin with that first one that I like. You know it. It's called the gospel song. We'll start with this one. We'll also go to a few more that will be a little deeper. They'll expand this concept a little more. My goal this morning is for you just to be able to perhaps close your eyes. Maybe you'll sing with us. Maybe you'll pray this. Um, But I want you to see the beauty of Christ. The wonder of his friendship to you. And I want you to leave this morning 
with a commitment to finding your fuel in his faithfulness, okay? Let's sing this together. One of these is new, but I think you'll pick it up pretty quickly. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. That's a friend, isn't it? simple, isn't it? We'll raise it to key. Sing it with us this time. Simple, four lines, but it's beautiful. Good theology. Holy God in love became perfect man to bear my That's a friend. Amen. Let's kind of unpack that a little more. What motivated that? The Father's deep love for us. Let's sing. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory Sing with us, would you? sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life I know that would you stand first family I will not boast in No power, no wisdom, but 
us who will boast in amen our greatest friend and resurrection why should I gain from his reward I cannot give an this I know with all my heart His wounds have paid my ransom But I gain from His reward Amen This I know with all my heart His his friendship amen but this I know with all my heart his wounds have paid my ransom let me teach you a new one that I think even unfolds this mystery a little more why would God be such a friend to us through his son Christ And how does that really fuel our own friendship? And how does that help our face show his faithfulness? You'll pick this up easily. But sing this with me. Come behold the wondrous mystery In the dawning of the King He the theme of heaven's praises Robed in... It's like Jonathan gave it up, didn't he? In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Amen. That's his friendship to us. Kind of pick it up, it's pretty easy. Come behold the wondrous mystery He the perfect Son of Man In His living, in His suffering Never trace nor stain of sin See the true and better Adam Come to save, amen Bound man Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in Him we stand. So come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead, your place, amen, church, for you. In victory, see the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured, love untold. Saw it play out in David and Jonathan. Played out in Christ now. Here's the last verse of this song. Come behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. 
But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. So come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light glory and grace his faithfulness fuels our friendship